0: This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog2Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Richard Atkinson. Uh, he is my co-host on a blog to watch Weekly, and today we're going to do a very special episode because we are... Reversing the roles, Uh, Rick thought it would be a great idea if I would be the one interviewed. And since we do a lot of chats on the other blog to watch podcast, which is a news show about, you know, the latest watches and what's going on in the collector's community, we're going to hear a little bit about me and um, hear about what he thinks are some of the most important topics. This is, you know, more than two and a half, uh, close to two and a half years, actually, into the show um and it's been very exciting and so we're gonna hear from me a little bit and if it's good then i'll come back um (laughs) with that said mr atkinson the floor is yours sir yes
1: so yeah i'm not so much your guest as you are my guest but on your show so yeah we thought it'd be fun that after two and a half years of you interviewing everybody else of you interviewing everybody else that we would interview you so yeah and as you say if you're good you'll be allowed to come back (laughs) So we should maybe put it to a vote. So if people would like to get onto the show notes for this at blog dot and if you upvote it, then Ariel can come back and have his show back all to himself. If you downvote it, then I'm your new host of Superlative. I think that's I think that's a fair way for it to work, Ariel. What do you think?
0: I mean, if you want more podcasting <laughs> duty, more power to you. Actually, you know, I was just looking at some of the statistics from Uh, The performance of articles on the website, we do this on a regular basis just to see what works and what people like. And after not too long, the articles we have to promote the podcast, whether it's an episode of superlative or a blog to watch weekly, are very high performing. They get, in some instances, several times the traffic of maybe your average watch release article. Uh, And of course, it makes sense because we talk about a lot of different things and they're getting popular but I believe so heavily in podcasting uh, for a long time. You know, the first podcast I ever did was in uh, around 2009, 2010. Uh, it was called Our Time. It was with John Biggs. No, you can't find it online. He took it down for reasons <laughs> we could discuss another time. But those are some great <laughs> episodes. I stopped for a number of years. I came back um, to bring, you know, to do superlative. Um, and it was a little bit of an uphill battle. And it was at a time where... I'm not really sure that podcasts were taken so seriously in the watch space. You know, I know you're interviewing me, but could you give some podcast context as to sort of how it's been a part of the watch community and maybe where it's come and where it is today?
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, if this is the way the interview is going to continue, that I'm going to need to insert the questions after you've pre-answered them.
0: I promise. So, <laughs> them <any time.
1: laughs> yeah, I mean, podcasting, I think, really took off. In the watch world, I mean, you guys, with our time working of the OGs, I think, certainly very early on, there were then a couple of others that spring to mind – uh, from other media outlets and the likes of two broke watch snobs they were probably the kind of first big independence that they weren't oh, based we were around our, our
0: time predated all of it oh I'm yeah no, you. but they were probably the first
1: <laughs> ones i was aware of that were on the out resurgence with, a
0: little bit yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah they were out with the magazine the online articles it actually was just I think, a podcast to begin with. Then, obviously, there was a few others. There there was one I happened to have been involved in called Scottish Watches. But that's for the show when you interview me. Uh, And that was probably four and a half years ago or so. Uh, And at that point, then everybody just piled in. And I think there's probably... There's maybe been 50 watch podcasts that I can think of, of which probably maybe 20 now still exist in any kind of regular volume. Obviously, a blog to watch has two stroke three of them. We have Spending Time Channel as well, which is worth having a look at for some of the real back catalogue stuff. Uh, but yeah, I think podcasting is now beginning to take over from YouTube, in my opinion. YouTube is always going to be huge. It's always going to have huge numbers and it's always going to have big personalities, some of which you've interviewed on Superlative in the past. But the thing with YouTube is it's, the stuff that's successful there is five minutes, seven minutes, 10 minute episodes. With a podcast, you're really in people's ears when they're doing other things that they enjoy as well. And I think that's where the difference is. A podcast you take with you, whereas I think at YouTube, you have to, be more active in watching. Uh, And I think it just creates a better... it's, It's the difference between radio and television. People love radio in a way that they don't love television. And I think it's the same with podcasting. And while it's nowhere near a mature product as yet, it's certainly well on the way and hopefully the content we both produce at blog to watch is is contributing to that. But we know how you got started in podcasting, but how did you get started in watches, Ariel? What was the first watch you can remember?
0: First watch I can remember was a Casio that was given to me, I want to say in preschool. mm mm-hmm. And I've had to spend a lot of time remembering this because I was quite young and I don't remember the context. Like some people are like, I remember having a watch at this age. <laughs> like I went so far as to remember exactly why. And and I remember I was excited about it. And I was like, what was it at this sort of tender age of like four or five or mm-hmm. whoever, however old I was, like, why did I see so much value in a wristwatch when like most other kids don't? And I remember what it was. It was a weird thing it was that I I would know how long recess was, right? Like the time in between (laughs) when you were in class. Uh You had a certain number of time. There was different breaks during the day. Some of them were 15 minutes long. And I remembered that with this tool on my wrist, I now had the power of knowing when they were coming, how long they would last. It was a very empowering thing because I remember the other kids, they would just sort of stroll around. They would keep asking adults, How much longer is recess? Or when is recess? Like this was this they were asking this question all the time, and suddenly with this device on my wrist, I could tell. And some people are like, "Oh well, isn't there a clock?" That's true. In the classroom, there was, but it was analog, and I was too young to read it. Digital was a lot easier. So the Casio was fantastic. And also, when you're outside during recess, there were no clocks, right? There was no phones Mm. or anything like that. This was in the in the in the 80s, so. Um, this watch offered me real utility as a four-year-old, and I'm not saying I became a watch dude then, but I wore a watch starting from the age of four or five years old continuously, um, you know, pretty much without without cease. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to leave the house. It was a it was a necessary thing. It was just you 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 couldn't imagine going your day without it on your wrist. I can
1: just imagine we four-foot-tall Ariel, the watch dude. Wandering around kindergarten and the playground, bossing it with knowing the time.
0: Uh, oh, people yeah. used to ask me, it was great. People knew <laughs> that I had the watch, right? So they wanted, I was very popular because of this. And then once in a while, this is funny. I remember this was a little bit later, maybe first or second grade, uh-huh. and other kids started to have watches, right? Uh, then, then,
1: then the competition starts. <laughs> there was some competition.
0: So, how did I compete? What did I do? This is this is so hilarious. Modded, what I would you modded your G-Shock? No, no, I didn't. I didn't mod it. It wasn't a G-Shock yet. I had I had like the um, you know just there were just Casios, and mm. I'll, I'll get to the I'll get to the next ones I had. I didn't have G-Shocks till later, but I I would compete by measuring the number of functions, <laughs> right? So if like that guy's watch had five functions, but my had eight, I clearly had the superior watch. So you can see why the Casio's would be exciting for me.
1: So already back in the those days, you're defining what a complication really is.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was excited by the numbers of things it did if it had the alarm and the stopwatch and the countdown timer. I didn't use the vast majority of these tools, but I was so excited by it. So then in elementary school, I remember getting my first set of calculator watches.
1: Ah, the calculator watch.
0: Oh, yeah. And again, <laughs> did I use it that often? No. Uh, frankly, I think it was like, Against the rules, you know, it was like, oh, you can't use the calculator, watch for your math test. So I didn't want to cheat. So I never really used it that much. Uh, but it felt really cool. And all those buttons just seemed like infinite possibility. All the things you could do with all those buttons, right?
1: That was just before we were due to get our jetpacks and our house made robots, <laughs> uh, which never happened. I still want my jetpack. Where do I demand my jetpack before I die? It'll probably be the thing that kills me, but there we go. So, yeah, so that was your early adventures into watches. Can you remember the first watch you actually bought yourself?
0: Yeah, it was the G Shock, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was in the mall. And I had a watch that broke. That's tended to be how I would buy new watches. You know, I'd wear them all the time. I wouldn't be super rough on them. But you know what it's like when you wear a watch every day? It puts some real wear and tear on it. And especially if it's a, you know, a 1990s G-Shock, you know, it's got, it's you know, things can tear. Things can break apart. It it just happened. It wasn't that big of a deal. Mm. So I was entrusted with some money, and I went to the mall, and I went to, you know, one of those multi-brand stores. But I knew that they had G-Shocks. I was only interested in G-Shock. There was Mm. no other watch in the world to me other than the G-Shock. I knew of other watches, and I had... I had appreciation for them, but I remember thinking, why would I wear an analog dial watch when the digital one uh, could be read so much faster? Like, I simply couldn't – I was. I would, like, you know, joke about people. Like, oh, that analog one where all it does is tell the time and really nothing else and it takes longer to read it? You silly person, you. <laughs> uh, that's – honestly, that's how I thought. So it was a G-Shock. I didn't buy – my first analog watch. I finally did it. it. wasn't too long after. It was after high school. I was in Paris. I was in Paris on the Champs Elysees, mm. and I bought my first analog watch. It was a Citizen, so an- another Japanese one. But it was it was this was you know starkly different. Um, you know, steel case, steel bracelet. You know, analog chronograph dial. It was part of their you know the ProMaster watches. Uh, it was kind of dressy, actually. It was more artistic. It didn't... Uh, it was very sort of interesting. I, was, I got lucky with that watch. And I wore that watch every single day for at least two years, I would say.
1: Mm. And can you remember the experience of going into your first, like, AD, not like a multi-brand kind of also-sold jewelry and you know, carriage clocks and whatever else uh, was for sale. Can you remember your first experience of tentatively creaking open the door at a Rolex boutique or a patek Philippe, completely underprepared and clearly not uh, wealthy enough yet to buy anything, but the curiosity of going in to see the the real deal shiny things?
0: Yeah, I remember you know, growing up in the mall in Los Angeles, there was all kinds of jewelry stores in the mall and, you know, a lot of them had watches. So I do remember seeing them a lot and I was aware of them and they all had the analog problem. Um, <laughs> and for me, you know, I was, I was someone that was looking for gadgets. yeah. And so those watches, they were sold next to jewelry. So in my mind, they're like not for me because I'm not buying jewelry as a teenage boy. Mm. And so for me, I was like, wait a minute, you're telling me that there's something I'd really like in the store that sells the rings for women? Like, that sounds preposterous. So I would see some of them. And there were certain brands I liked. You know, you'd see, you know, the Rolexes were okay. I remember liking & Mossier because I saw that a lot. You saw Omegas. And, you know, from time to time, you'd see other things. But I, I was exposed to the sort of world of, you know, Swiss watches and things like that. But there was a crucial piece of information missing from me. And I did not know... I did not know that they cost so much more than, like, the G-Shocks I was getting. I just never really put it together in my mind. I never checked the price because I wasn't interested in buying them. And I had the watch on my wrist. And, again, I, I it just it never really dawned upon me to 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 ask the question of how much do they cost. I got the lesson that, that luxury watches were expensive in college. Uh, so it was a little bit later. Um, not too much lo- later, but it was maybe I don't know, 18 or 19 years old, where I learned that watches were this expensive thing, and that sort of it was another thing. And I and I remember that for a lot of people, they shared a very similar experience. That it wasn't until they realized that these objects have really high prices in some instances, vastly, you know, it, 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 stratospherically high prices in other instances, it piques your curiosity. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you you gotta explain like, why these are so expensive. And that happened, again, I was in a store, I was in Australia for a trip, and I was in Sydney, and I went into a store that was, I guess we would call a concept store, and they just had cool stuff. And I I, I saw a Mont Blanc watch that I quite fancied, um, and I thought to myself, hey, that'd be nice to buy, so I say I want to buy it. And then they're going to ring it up, and Uh, I had just gotten off a flight, right? So it was like a really long flight (laughs) to Australia. (laughs) And there's a different currency. And I I got a few other things as well. I bought like a backpack, which I still have today, actually, and a couple of things there. And I remember like asking the guy several times, I was like, wait, what did you say the price was? Like, I, I was like, did I hear an extra number or something like that? And the price of the watch, I believe, was somewhere around between two. And twenty five hundred dollars. So not what we would consider like insanely high, but like I'm eighteen or nineteen. So for me, like I have no business spending this money. I don't. I don't even have, you know, this kind of money to spend. If I did it, it would. It would just. You know, I'd. I'd be in trouble. So (laughs) I regretfully had to be like, wow. And the guy understood. He was like, yeah, Mm -hmm. don't worry. This happens all the time. I I had no idea, (laughs) but I remember from that moment just. Wanting to know, like, why? And and I didn't really get around to answering until, you know, maybe two years later. But that's when I sort of learned that there was a world that I didn't know about. And these things that it was just difficult to imagine when you could conceivably own something like that. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, now, I mean, I got into watches kind of in a weird way and without any sort of family interaction you know nobody else in my immediate family was particularly interested in watches is there some other influence that brought you along for the journey an uncle a father a cousin something like that or was this all really it's all self concept it was all just you exploring the world
0: i mean watches were things that people were wearing you know um as a child pretty much everyone around me had a watch. It was just a thing people had. It was like a mm. car in Los Angeles. Like once in a while, someone wouldn't have a car, but you know, where were they on the ladder? It just, it wasn't really, it really, it was a thing that you had to have. And so all the, all the family members had one, but nobody really talked about their watches. No one seemed to have one that was like particularly fancier than the other. They were fine. My grandfather had a watch that had his name on it. So it had Adams on the dial uh, it was a nice watch. It was a, it was this gold Swiss watch. Some a client years ago uh, had given it to him as a gift, and he had just decided to wear that more or less for the rest of his life, even though he had to keep working on it and fixing it. Um, but he had he had had some watches. So you know, I knew watches were something that were fun to wear, but I don't. I never associated it with being a luxury item. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, you know absolutely. So we've we've heard about your near-death experience uh, via jet lag of nearly spending more money than you had in the world during your student years. So what were you studying? Your background, I think, is law.
0: Well, this was undergrad, so law didn't come till later. I was right. just an undergrad. Um, I ended up majoring in communication, but the thing about communication was it was one of these majors that had very Li- like very few classes you had to take. So you had to have a certain number of credits in order to graduate, of course, but you didn't need a lot within your major. So I, I, I did a field of study that sort of ma- – I made up my own minor. I made up a minor of entertainment law because I wanted mm-hmm. to go to law school afterwards. And I just took a lot of random classes. So I, I loved my college experience because I really just got to take whatever I want. Not a lot of math, thankfully, <laughs> but some math. And then I went to law school after that, because again, if you, if you have the plan of going to grad school, sometimes what you study undergrad just doesn't really matter. Um, I was going to study film. That's what I wanted to do originally, but having a family from LA, they just sort of convinced me that it would be easier to service people in the entertainment industry, you know, as an attorney versus be the filmmaker that was hard and difficult. And, um, I don't know. Cool. I just sort of, I just, I just went with their advice. It seemed, you know, it seemed like the the reasonable thing to do. With go with advice from people who sort of know what they're th- thinking about. But of course, I do wonder what my life would have been like if I went down um, a filmmaking route. I still like film a lot. I probably could do it. Favorite film? Yeah, I've I've done things here and there. I mean, I used to <laughs> record a lot of videos and things like that. I think you know, film is an art form, and and we're I'm making a different kind of art form. I'm celebrating art. I'm working within the world of aesthetics. I'm working within the world of gadgets um, and and the appreciation of technique. Um, I get to nerd out in in, in a lot of the same ways with watches as I would doing something like that. And there's a lot of crossover, So I I don't feel like I'm missing out on any nerdery. So Away
1: From Watches, what's your favorite movie? Away From Watches? Is there a
0: watch movie? No, I mean,
1: like, as in, watches is obviously a favorite thing. So Away From Watches, different subject. What's your favorite movie?
0: This re- it reminds me in college where again I was in a film class and they asked this question <laughs> and they and they gave us time to uh-huh. answer like it wasn't like on the spot and I I hated the question. I just hated it. I was like <laughs> this is so stupid. There's so many <laughs> good movies.
1: I'm asking this because I know yeah, I'm asking this cuz I I know how much you loathe making lists of things. <laughs> top no, it's tens, just top it's fives. so
0: arbitrary. <laughs> your favorite like how horrible would life have to be if that's it? Okay, one one movie, Ariel, <laughs> yeah, over be and over and over again.
1: The worst person to play Desert Island Discs in the world would be you, a <laughs> complete indecision. So, okay, oh we we'll put this way. So you're on a plane. What film do you hope is included on the back of the seat?
0: Look, I I, I just basically said, you know, if I had to, ch- and this was again at the time early, t- I said if I had to choose one Really good filmmaker that do a lot. It would be it was Stanley Kubrick, uh-huh. who, you know, just a really great filmmaker. Everyone agrees, you know. Some of the films just, you know, just inc- incredible. The, the range. So I, I just said someone like that, and that was fine. I don't know, maybe I said Clockwork Orange or something like that. I, don't, I again a Kubrick film. Okay, well, well but yeah, we'll, I mean, look, I like Kubrick. I like it artsy. I like it detailed. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm a bit of a film nerd, but I'm an everything nerd. And everything nerd. I think that's a good description. That's your new bio for
1: your Twitter handle or Instagram. And everything nerd. <laughs> uh, so we've got you into grad school. You come out with a law degree. Obviously, the system in the states works a bit differently from the UK. In case you haven't guessed, I'm from the UK. Uh, those that are listening to this that don't listen to a blog to watch weekly, and if you don't, then why not? I. Uh, so you've come out of grad school as a lawyer. Where do you go next? Uh, some law firm in LA or do you move around the country? No, I was
0: in San Francisco uh, at the time. That's where I went to law school. Right. I worked at a company. I was the only lawyer there. I was the in-house counsel. The company doesn't exist anymore. Um, <laughs> Did such a great I, job. <laughs> they were, they, you know, they didn't go under until I left. So okay, that's, that's important fun. to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I. And that was a really good experience because I got a lot of entrepreneurial, I guess you could say just um, exposure. You know, Mm -hmm. I I learned a little bit about the world of the internet. I learned about, you know, internet marketing. I learned about just teams in general. Like little things like, uh, one of the things I remember learning that was so fascinating to me was the experience of working with a graphic designer. Right. Right. And there's definitely a right and wrong way to work with a graphic designer. Graphic designers are incredible. I I value them so much. Um, But they're, you know, like many other artists, um, you can't just find any graphic designer to do any work. You have to first find the right graphic designer and make sure that you're giving them the right job. And when you're giving feedback, there's certain ways to talk to them. And I had to do some work with graphic designers. I had to do some work with, you know, computer programmers. I had to do some work with various types of administrative people. And I, and I really remember how everybody needed sort of a different way of, of, of speaking to. You know, someone who was a lawyer needed one way. Someone who was um, a different type of professional needed a completely different way. And mm. I think that's what I really learned most uh, from that experience, or at least I remember the most, was this sort of like, the, the, the multi, not, not, not really multiculturalism, though it is. You know, each, each of those jobs is its own culture, right? The, being yeah. a computer programmer is a very different culture than being a salesperson. And understanding how those different cultures in the same office come together to build something. And I don't think that I've ever seen any type of entrepreneur who's successful that doesn't understand that companies, offices, teams, whatever, are made up of a bunch of different cultures. Cultures that need to be bridged and connected, but you never want to sort of smush them together into one culture because that doesn't work.
1: Well, I mean, one thing I've noticed getting to know actually via the watch world, probably more than anything else, getting to a lot of people that are based in the States, is that everybody in the States has a side hustle. It's just not the culture in the UK. Everybody in the States has a side hustle. So I'm guessing that the side hustle of watches and where you've eventually ended up with a blog to watch was maybe already starting to appear as you were working your first job as an attorney?
0: You know, it... I, I, when I hear side hustle and I agree it is a big thing and if you look at your GDP you might want to consider it a little bit more. <laughs> but just saying um
1: I've got about 40 I've got I've got about 14 side hustles for everybody else around in this you country. You have a lot so. you have a lot
0: but I'm just saying if that is that is the culture and again mm. I I keep up to date on on UK economics just saying <laughs> or lack everyone. Thereof. Yeah okay. <laughs> um, a side hustle is a venture designed to At some point, earn a return. A Mm. hobby is just something you sort of do for fun. There are times where hobbies can turn into a side hustle and the side hustle can turn into your career. But when I started a blog to watch, or it was a blog to read at the time, I, I don't know that I had a huge profit incentive, or at the very least, there was no like business model. I did know people that were making money at blogging, but like they mostly had blogs about blogs right They're like here's a here's a marketing blog about you know marketing blogs uh-huh. and it was a lot of that type of thing and I was I was doing something very different from most of them was like let me take the same strategy that you have and just make a hobby thing out of it or I talk about something I like. I didn't even know it's just gonna be uh, watches I, I I think I just sort of felt, somewhat um, maybe isolated and I didn't have a lot of people to speak to about the things I was interested in. Watches were a great example. I I did have friends, of course, and they didn't share the enthusiasm. And I never felt bad about it. It was like, come on, guys, why can't you just get into this? (laughs) I was just like I understood. I was like, it takes a very special person uh, and a very special experience to unlock the horologist within. Um, <laughs> That's right. <funny.
1: laughs> you just consider yourself better than them. That's what you do.
0: <laughs> no, I, I I was disappointed. Didn't care about it, but I realized that, like you know, day in day out for years, I would speak about watches. I would just always find a time to speak about it. I had a lot of passion for it, and people could tell I had a lot of passion for about uh, about it. But there weren't that many other topics that I really spoke about on a daily basis. And I thought, in looking back at it, it was kind of weird how smitten I was with the topic of watches. I still can't quite explain why, but it was like not one day went by where I didn't really think about this hobby.
1: So when when did that happen? When did the person that couldn't buy – I mean, did did this coincide with being able to buy the things or – was this happening because you couldn't actually buy the product? A bit like car geeks. Most car geeks can't buy the Ferrari. So they talk about the Ferrari. Was this the stage you were at, you were talking about it because you couldn't afford to buy all the ones that you wanted to? Um. Or, or did it come in a process that actually, as you were able to afford them, you then became more interested, and what I'm trying to get to the kind of chicken and egg, which came first: the desire to talk about them, or the ownership, which then led to the. It was to talk about them.
0: I, I had been buying watches on a regular basis for about six years before I started the website. Right. These were not very expensive watches. I would, you know, I would buy online for the most part. A lot of it was through eBay, and I would buy. A lot of Japanese watches and some other things. Um, and I would just try to find deals on stuff. You know, there, there just seemed to be so much stuff out there. There was never like this idea of a grail. Like I could care less about owning one specific watch. I wasn't trying to impress anyone. I was obsessed with the variety. I wanted to see what things looked like, what they felt like. The experience of wearing them and reading them on a very personal level, was satisfying. I liked it when people recognize it and talk about it, but I wasn't trying to show off or anything like that. It was just something I really cared a lot about, and I I got a lot of enjoyment from these relatively inexpensive watches. And again, it made sense... Cause I was in college and I had no business, you know, spending. It wasn't until I was twenty-five and I, you know, started having a job being out of school, did I start buying anything that was maybe more than a thousand dollars. And that was the same time that I started a blog to watch. So I would say blog to watch coincided with me actually being a more active consumer of, you know, the types of watches that enthusiasts would tend to be more excited about.
1: And so in kind of the same way that I got into podcasting and listening to somebody else and going, I could do that. Was there something you would engage with in the watch community or in the blogging community wider than watches that made you think, wait a minute, I can do that. And perhaps I can even do that better.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking about that. I did spend, I, w- I wasn't part of the community. Not really, not really. Uh, I read forums, you know, for, before I started a website on on watches, I used the internet to, to read up on watches, which was looking at various stores online. Forums were really the place to get <clears throat> any type of, type of qualitative data, and I found them to be weird because the forums were basically individual people who posted what they cared about, but the forums themselves had all these arbitrary rules and restrictions, and tribalism, and and, and hierarchies, and policies, and all this weird stuff that got in the way from just talking about watch. And I and I found it so. Strange and uncomfortable that just to learn about this hobby, I had to deal with reading all this politics, right? <laughs> yeah, and so for me, I wanted to have a source to read about watches. It was a lot more like the sort of computer car, you know, camera, whatever magazines that I grew up with in the 1990s that I would just I would read over intensely. I would I, I I subscribed to maybe a dozen two dozen magazines at one point um, constantly going to the newsstand any type of hobbyist magazine I could get a hold of on crazy stuff I remember I get issues of Cat Fancy magazine just to be like <laughs> what are they talking about like I'm just curious <laughs> what does the magazine about cats talk about and I I found out I would get you know Field and Stream. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, guns and ammo, all <laughs> kinds of car things, Not a big carpentry. <laughs> home. Yeah, and and I, I at some point, I think it was in like 2001 or something like that. I came across uh, a watch magazine, which was really a big part of my journey of getting into watches. But again, watch magazines at the time had like no commentary; like it was all descriptive. Everyone was just afraid to say anything. And I I had gone from reading these car magazines, which I don't have to tell you, you know, yeah. full of colorful personality mm-hmm. and opinion yeah. and vitriol at times. Oh, yes. Okay, <laughs> when they didn't like that car, they would make a very amusing uh, discussion and tell you about it. And that was completely absent from the world of watch conversations. All you had were these sterile conversations in print publications and these weird personality-driven cultish conversations online that were frankly difficult to penetrate as an outsider
1: so a blog to read was a website or was it posted in like some blogosphere no thing it, was the it was a dot com
0: it was it was a wordpress-based website and i mean obviously wordpress has evolved much and the yep. website is built a lot but it's still a wordpress-based website
1: And so that contained presumably slightly more than just watches. At what point did you go, actually, this wants to be called a blog to watch?
0: It wasn't very long before I realized that watches could be what I wanted to talk about every day. I mean, look, I had just finished law school. You know, there was legal things, you know, interesting legal topics. That was an emerging area. There's a lot of discussion about, you know, just legal topics online tech stuff I, I I didn't know I didn't know what it was going to be about I just knew that it was going to be about the things that were interesting to me and I mean literally within weeks I think it became very clear that I didn't need that other stuff it didn't have any use and and watches were just there was there was something to do there you know you could have a focus and you know you know, everyone knows a magazine needs to have focus you can't just talk about everything it didn't make sense and so I was happy to take it in the watch direction it just just kind of happened. And for approximately two years, I did the website stuff and my full-time job, both concurrently, sort of one during the day, one at night. And the website was basically two things. It was making content, writing articles and stuff like that, but also building it. Yeah. Um, at the time, there was a much different universe online than there is today. And I, I can't stress this enough. Uh, you know, 15 years ago, the tools and the help and the things you could find on the internet were just so vastly different than today. Uh, there's a lot more free things. There was a lot more tools coming all the time, and there was this wonderful sense that there was always this better thing around the corner. And then you we were building a website every couple of months, something better, something better, something better. And it was so great to sort of get on that wave um, and just sort of see it. And it was it was a wonderful time because we just saw advancements in hardware and software all over the place, especially living in San Francisco, which was really sort of the epicenter of so much of it. It, it was just very easy to grav- gravitate towards the hobby of building a website. I'm not a computer programmer. I had no background in it. Um, to do things I, 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 I needed to do that I couldn't do, coding things, for example, I just had a wealth of people I could ask in the area, whether there were friends or friends of friends, or there's various places to post. Uh, I remember on, you know, Craigslist, for example, um, you, you know, I would post sometimes for needing website help here and there, and I found interesting people to do all kinds of interesting stuff. At some point, the website had a community, and I had a little bit more professionalism. I can go to various sources and things like that. But you know, that was sort of the wonderful thing about the community is that the, the community you can go to it it's it's a two directional conversation a magazine's one directional online you know if you need to go to the community and be like hey does anybody anybody good at video anybody good at podcasting anybody good at website design or coding databases php you know whatever um, you could you could find help in a relatively efficient way and and again it's different now it is it's harder it's harder now more expensive uh, a lot more walls and barriers around this but it was it was a wonderful time uh, to be, you know, I- in that sort of internet content, uh, internet architecture. I'll call it. You know, building properties online was fun and rewarding and something you could do yourself. And there are there are elements of that today, but it's 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 different. And I couldn't do uh, today what I did then with the website. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase because everyone deserves real.
1: So what
0: year are
1: we talking, we're in around, are we 2007?
0: 2007 is when the website formally starts and in 2009 is when I dedicated myself to it uh, full-time as a career, uh, which again was a, a difficult decision. I, I I wasn't fired from my job or anything like that. I had made the decision to leave the job uh, and dedicate myself full-time to this Um and, various reasons for that. This was around the time right after uh, the recession. So there was a there was a big, you know, a big recession then, 2008-2009. Yep. Changes the dynamic at work, changes the morale, changes the future outlook and things like that. And what had happened in San Francisco at the time was there was a bunch of big intellectual property law firms and intellectual property was more or less what I specialized in that dissolved. Overnight dissolved. Uh, big powerful firms th- thousands tens of thousands of lawyers just just dissolved it was a major one that dissolved i remember at one point it was a surprise to everyone it turned out that microsoft was like 80% of their billable hours and microsoft's large you know uh monopoly uh I- you know trials and things like that in with the eu the the anti um you know not non-competitive things that they were doing stuffing I don't know internet explorer and whatever yeah. uh, but that that was years and years and years of trials and things like that it got it got it got settled at some point after 10 years of this and um apparently the entire firm was leaning on that so it dissolved and these thousands of highly experienced lawyers that were doing more or less the same thing I did flooded the market and a few other firms did that and the chances of me getting a good legal job in San Francisco. It wasn't nothing. I could have hunted and things like that. And I did a little bit, but it was just, I was very low on the list of, of qualified choices, right? Like you're going to hire this green lawyer right out of law school or someone that has a decade of experience that's willing to work for not too much. You know, it, it, it clearly, the, clearly the cards weren't stacked in my favor there. So I made the decision to go ahead and dedicate myself full-time to the website. It was making me, some money at the point i had people that reached out and wanted to advertise and they they were quite loyal
1: so t- tell me about tell me about the first time somebody came to you with you doing this as a hobby and says you know what we'd actually like to pay you something to advertise this who, who was your first customer can you remember
0: i don't remember the very first customer there was a period of time where there was a few, so there was like a couple of first brands and things like that. Um, I remember certain companies like uh, Magret from New Zealand, Loom Tech from the U.S., uh, Linda Verdelin uh, from you know from uh-huh. Switzerland. I you know they they well Danish Danish guys, but Swiss yep. brand, I guess. You know these were some of the first. MBNF uh, wasn't really an advertiser, but was a, a supporter uh, very early on. It made a lot of sense for them. And there were others, you know, they they had something to sell. Advertising the magazines was hard. Advertising the forums was hard. I had something they needed. I had a good audience. I had something they needed. And and I didn't need to charge them a lot of money. I was one person and it was supplemental income for me. Uh-huh. So it wasn't that hard. I remember I was happy about. I mean, I started it like you know, really cheap things, like a little banner in the corner, like fifty bucks a month, you know, like yeah, uh, like really inexpensive stuff here. Um, and to them, they were probably being like, "Whoo hoo! This little great, let's do it." <laughs> so it, it was a win win. The magazines, you know, even years after that, and I raised my prices. They hated my guts because I was one person or a very small team, and I was able to charge heck of a lot less. And I'm not saying that I charged too little, but in a lot of instances they were charging too much and I made them look quite bad by comparison.
1: So tell me about that a bit, because here you are in the world of digital, uh, the companies you've listed uh, already, I can identify as being watch brands that do think a little bit out of the box, but what was the reaction you've touched there and what the reaction was in the, the, you know, the mainstream watch media, for want of a better phrase, to what extent was the watch world itself engaging with you or were they like, yeah, no, we are, we are the Swiss watch industry. We've been going for hundreds of years. We don't need to know about your little internet thing.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I could have been a lot more phased by it. Like I didn't exactly receive a warm welcome most of the time. It never really phased me too much. I remember for years I had a very thick skin I remember just thinking I didn't really need them. I mean, later eventually the relationships with the Europeans and namely the Swiss had to deepen had to evolve and they did in my bedside manner with them, so to say has has improved a lot, and I'm very proud of some of the but again, I started when I was twenty five you know here I am, a California kid with some travel experience, but by no means you know an international businessman. Uh, is starting to, I guess you could say, do business or simply work and converse with uh, a diverse set of mature personalities from around the world. And I was not prepared at 25 years old or even, you know, a few years later for what it took to convince, you know, one of the types of personalities you described to spend money or to trust me or to take me seriously. I assumed that they knew a lot more than they did. I didn't know how strange the internet was to them. I didn't, I didn't know that they couldn't tell the performance we had because a lot of the data was public. Mm. You could, you could you know, relatively easily see which websites were doing well and you could go on there and see the activity. And There was just a lot of data that was there, but they, they, they wouldn't look. They didn't know what it means. So there's always this big gap because I was always on the impression they knew exactly what I was offering, exactly what I was doing. And the reality is, is they were always several years behind. A minimum two or three, maybe four or five years behind the times. It would take them that long to learn something before they incorporate it into their own mentality, their own vocabulary, their own sort of strategies and ways of doing business. Um, so now I've been doing this for over 15 years, and they've definitely caught up in a lot of areas. But I, again, just maybe I, – I don't think it was my age so much as where I came from in the world – I just didn't understand how different things were. And that's, that's really, I think, a big shock to many people. Once you start to travel, you, you you start to realize like just how different. Some things are very similar, but there's some major differences behind cultures and values, laws, practices. Just even if they're little things, they add up. And so trying to make sense of where I was and what I was doing was sort of an ongoing thing. I always felt like a tourist – and, you know, when I went back home to <laughs> San Francisco or later, well, it wasn't that, but like, okay, so I was living in San Francisco for a, a big part of, of this. Uh-huh. Uh, I moved back to LA in, in, in 2011. So there was, you know, four years of me doing a blog to watch when I was living there. And when I went back to San Francisco, you know, there was no watch community in town. Uh, nobody there recognized me or cared. It was like, this very strange thing where I was very well known in this hobby, but that hobby didn't really have a lot of impact on the rest of the world. Like when you're at the in the in the in the events, like oh, people know me, that's great. But mm. walking on the street, dating, uh, in social circles, like it didn't mean anything. Nobody cared. So it was very weird because I would sort of step into their world and then step back out of the world. And they were in their world all the time, right? All the time they were in their world. And when I started to have to make more of a serious business out of it, and I had to, you know, do things like pay team members and salaries and stuff like that. I started to have to put a lot more effort into the business side, which means establishing a lot of trust and rapport, and, 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 I, and I had to learn a lot about the different cultures. But remember, I mean, you know, uh, in, the, in the UK, right, that's one, that's one set of cultures, mm. France, Germany, Switzerland, Italy. You know, those are sort of the main places in Europe. Well, of course, there's others, you know, there's people, of course, from the Netherlands, which is a big part of it, and, and and some other countries from time to time. Then you have, of course, Asia. You have, you know, people in Hong Kong and mainland China and Japan and Singapore and, 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 and various other types of places that um, you'd have to, to work with in various capacities and things like that. So, and then, of course, the United States, there's, you know, different ways of, of doing things. And I had to carefully navigate all these different cultures and all these different personalities, um, not just to do business, but to understand the product. You know, a watch that comes from a, a designer from one of these places is not going to look different. It's going it's to look different. It's not going to be the same. There's going to be a lot of complicated types of um, differences. And I enjoyed deconstructing everything and understanding you know, where they were coming from. And it was, and in, in, there weren't that many people that, again, nerded out um, on those cultural differences and all those strategic differences. And why does the watch look this way? And why is it sold that way? And it was just great to travel around the world and see how this hobby that I enjoyed manifests itself so differently, like in Moscow, how watch appreciation is its own thing compared to maybe like in, you know, in, in Tokyo two important places for watch appreciation um, for different reasons. Just, you know, it couldn't be more different in terms of, you know, the people and the culture and things like that. And I just love that, you know, both of these places have serious watch lovers, but the watches that came from these places and the watches they like are very different and the collectors are different. Um, and I, I got to feel like this sort of permanent tourist. And still to a degree, I feel like a tourist in a culture, I've never really felt like an insider. I I wasn't born in it. Mm. I don't have any special type of legitimacy. Well, that's the difference. I do have some special legitimacy. That's not true. I do, but I, I I come to it all sort of accidentally, and so it's it's fueled by curiosity more than anything else.
1: So you've got to move back to San Francisco. No, which way around did you move? You were in Los Angeles. You were in Los Angeles and moved to San Francisco.
0: So it was Los Angeles to Arizona to San Francisco and then back to Los Angeles.
1: And then back to Los Angeles. So at what stage in that moving process did it go from being a one-man band to going, actually, you know what? I'm going to start either employing or paying people to also contribute because that's going to be a big step when you reach out beyond just, yeah, this is income for me, but it's now helping to support other people that's a that's a different kind of responsibility
0: so that happened while i was still living in san francisco i would say that i don't remember the exact year to be honest it was maybe three years into it that i started bringing aboard other content producers and and that was because there was just too much content to do and things like that it it didn't make things too much more challenging in a lot of ways it made things better because you could just get a lot more done i think the challenges came uh, a little bit later but I still try to keep a pretty lean operation because I am I am not the world's best, you know, human resources manager. I am not the world's best, you know, finance strategist and things like that. Like I know what I'm good at. And and the the size of Blood Watch is really dependent on what the community allows. If the community and watch brands and things like that want to funnel more uh, into creating an enthusiast. Um, environment, a blog to watch can can grow much bigger. There is so much room to grow, uh, but if the community and the in the industry just don't seem to have that a lot of value in it, which again is is what happens a lot because anytime there's a downturn, any mm. economic downturn at all, even this the hint of one, and watch brands cut marketing budgets. Yeah, and those are the same budgets that go to pay for media spending and things like that. And so you have this weird situation where they need media, right? I'm going to say it right now. The luxury watch industry is a media-driven industry. No media, no demand. No demand, nobody's buying expensive luxury items. But with that said, they have a very terse relationship with media for the most part and do not like to do business with media that they do not trust, that isn't, quote, supportive. And supportive media isn't always media, which is good for consumers, right? Consumers want authentic media. You know, uh, advertisers want loyal media. And these are a conflict of interest. These are things that you cannot necessarily have at the same time. Advertisers often win at the same time for a number of years. It was also true that consumers did not want to pay for information on the internet. That's slowly starting to change, but it's still the de facto status quo that people expect information to be free. And that is what it is. Um, I do believe that the, in the future it makes the most sense for media to be paid by the user. Uh, if you are relying on watch reviews, why would you not spend a little bit of money to have those created so that they're created for someone like you? And, again, I've tested this time and time again through polling and, and gauging sentiment. People right now do not want to pay for the content. They just don't. They'll pay for other things. They'll pay for services. They'll pay for stuff. They'll even probably pay for events, but paying for watch reviews, videos, and content and things like that, they will not do probably because there's the perception that there's so much free content out there. You do get what you pay for, yes. uh, but the convenience of free um, allows people to believe that if they absorb enough of it, that maybe the uh, the truth will shine that's not really the sort of crux of this argument. The bottom line is that a blog to watch um, is a facet of the of the industry. And when the industry wants to invest more into media, a blog to watch can do a lot more. And when the industry is in a uh, cautious state, a blog to watch can exist as a lean entity.
1: Yeah, I think that's what attracted me to getting involved with a blog to watch on the podcasting side was obviously we've had lots of discussions in the past, both recorded and unrecorded. Uh, And it was the independent streak that exists within your vision for a blog to watch and within the actuality of what you produce. You have managed to maintain probably what you set out to do that you mentioned earlier when it comes to the likes of car magazines. That on the one hand, the car companies will still provide the cars for the car magazines to review, whether they get bad reviews, good reviews or or whatever. And I think what we're gradually beginning to see as the market matures and watches is that the consumer is beginning to recognize that there is a difference between media output that is just media, takes advertising, the same as a car magazine does, and watch media that takes advertising but also tries to sell the product. And the one thing that I'm always... Delighted about is we don't sell watches. We want everybody to buy watches. We just don't want them to buy them from us. What we'd really like is for people to spend money in other ways, yeah. shop, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Let, let me let me
0: point something out here. I think yeah. this is important to point out. I, I don't like the practice of selling watches and making watch media. Uh, you don't either. No, nope. we know that. We talk about this on superlative a lot because it's something I feel passionate about. But I want to maybe offer some explanation. There is a demand for watch media for written content, photography, video, podcasts, and other things like that. And that stuff costs money. So if you're in media, you recognize people want it. The problem is it's really hard to pay for it. And so these media companies choosing to adopt a store is really out of a desperate move to say, guys, we have got to find some way of paying for the content that we want to build and them naively believing that, oh, and, and on the side we'll have a store, that being a solution. A lot of problems comes with that. They end up just being a store. You don't you can't really do both at the same time. Again, a different discussion. But I simply want to explain the con- context that they, they are operating out of a desire to satisfy the demand for watch media, which clearly exists across many channels, mm. whether it's website building to TikTok. There is a demand out there for content about these collectible items that we really, really love. The watch industry uh, and the watch retail environment does not put nearly enough money out there to make it so that as much content as the consumer wants can be produced. And that's a very real thing that I've continued to see for 15 years now. So that's
1: been the last 15 years. What do you think we see in the next 15, or is that a complete mugs game to even anticipate what will happen in the next six months? let alone the next 15 years. Maybe maybe distinguish between what you think will happen and what you would like to
0: happen. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's something that I've done a lot in the past. I've made hopes. I've been optimistic. I've been, oh, this and this and this is going to happen this year. Um, I think the sad reality is the watch industry was probably the coolest when I was just getting into watches in the early 2000s up until about two thousand eight. It was just so freaking cool. It will Mm. not be rivaled. It will not be replaced in our lifetime. There was a certain coalescing of factors, right? And all these crazy watches and brands are coming out. And it, it was just incredible. Nothing ever will happen like that again. The economic recession happens in 2008, 2009, which puts a major halt to all this. But then you have China and some emerging markets making up for some of the gap The problem is the types of watches and the business models that were popular during the sort of new economy didn't favor stuff like that. It didn't favor the investment in all these crazy watches and new designs. It was making a lot of the same stuff, making a lot of the same stuff a little bit blingier and that's more expensive, a lot of classicism, simple simple things are easier to produce uh, and thus they cost less, but you can charge the same amount for them. So there was a lot of efficiency creating in the watch industry that took out a lot of the grandeur and exuberance and just excessive overengineering that got me really excited about things. And you still see it once in a while today, but it's it's a lot less common. And so since I started in 2007, I've actually seen a decline, again, growth here and there, and of course a lot of evolution and wonderful things, but an overall decline in the level of excitement that I think you could see as a consumer. And today a lot of the excitement isn't about product but is related to conversations about product, right? So there's a lot of products today that if not for some type of consumer collective saying, wow, isn't this Rolex hot? Like nobody would think so. Whereas when I first started, you know, a bunch of people independently see a picture of some wild thing and just say, wow, that is that is incredible. I, I just want to know more about that. Mm. And so I didn't I didn't need – to like look around the room and look at faces and be like, okay, everyone, uh, should we get excited about this? Is, is this cool or is this lame? I'm not really sure. I, I got to look around at everyone's faces. <laughs> and that's sort of like where we are today. And again, I promise you that, you know, some of these, again, boring, classic sports watches that they're good watches, but they get so much fervor. None of that would happen if it wasn't for the conversation around them. As products and as stories, they're oftentimes just truly not that exciting.
1: Yeah, so as we bring uh, today to a close, let's uh, challenge Ariel again with another couple of questions that he's not going to like because it involves putting things in a list of priorities. What is the favorite article that you've actually been involved in in the whole A Blog To Watch experience? What's the one, I'll maybe give you two, that actually stick out?
0: Can I mention a article that I didn't write on a blog to watch? Absolutely. So I've written in many other places um, regularly or as a contributor once in a while. And years ago, I wrote an article on Forbes, uh, where I used to spend a little bit more time, just was sort of a diminishing return on investment for me writing stuff there, just I have other places to write. But I wrote an article that was, I guess you could say I had the most feedback, It seemed to make the most impact, and the article was about how many people in the European watch industry over a period of time were systematically deconstructing sort of the American side of the American watch industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were replacing American employees you know, in the American market with Europeans that were sort of here temporarily for a couple of years on a visa – uh, they were they were taking away a lot of the ability for for American retailers to make money by by you know having their own stores here. They were replacing American-owned distributors with um, you know uh, Swiss or foreign-owned uh, subsidiaries and things like that. There was this great move to strip money away from Amer- America uh, and more more specifically to deprive a lot of Americans from working in the American watch industry which I feel is really important and I think is is generally agreed to be true. And that's the idea that in the watch industry, right, or for any industry, when you go to another market, don't hire a bunch of people from the home market and send them there. Hire locals who, of course, understand the values but can serve the needs of that brand in the way that the locality in that country uh, uh, expects, uh, wh- whether it's marketing or sales approach or, or even product design or whatever. And, and I wrote about and, – and this – I've been studying it for years and seeing what had been happening and, and just observing it myself. This caused me issues. There were people in Switzerland who truly did not like me for writing this. Um, it wasn't wrong, but they felt that this was a, a, a breach of, I don't know, um, my loyalty to them. I'm like, my loyalty is to you know my my country and my ability for my fellow people to – to earn a living as part of loving this industry. Like we're happy to share, but they wanted to come in here. And what they were doing is they were funneling money right out of America. They were taking American money rather than giving it back to Americans and salaries. There was a minimal, minimum of that happening. And it was just going right out of the country. And I, I didn't, I didn't think that was right. And that wasn't the industry that I wanted to be in here. So I had a lot of people who uh, thanked me privately, an enormous amount of people that thanked me for that said that they wanted to talk about themselves, that they had seen it and it bothered them. And it did make changes and it's slow and it's still not great. But I think it gave a voice to a lot of my fellow people uh, who were Americans that love watches that dedicated their lives, their careers, their intelligence, their strength, their energy to building a market for watches in the United States and in many instances all that effort was unceremoniously stripped away from them in an unfair way because of greed. And I wasn't okay with that. And so from an activist standpoint, I would say that's the article that, that, that I'm probably the most satisfied with. And was accidental. I did not intend for it to have that mm. effect.
1: Well, the Forbes website team will be wondering why this article from many moons ago is suddenly getting a, a whole load <laughs> of new hits. After this show. And then a final question: Of all the people who are in the watch industry, you've got to be probably somewhere in the top 10 of the person that's tried on the most watches. It wouldn't surprise me if Tim Mossell is number one and you're number two. So when you close your eyes at night, when you close your eyes tonight, just you know, get yourself relaxed, nice cup of hot cocoa, go into your bed and you close your eyes. Of all the watches you've ever tried on and worn, what one works its way from the ether into your dreamlike state as you drift off?
0: This sounds suspiciously like a favorite watch question. I'm just saying. <laughs> Rats,
1: <laughs> try <to hide> it. <laughs> I know, I
0: know. Good job, good job. Um, I've never actually been able to sleep wearing a watch too well. I've done it once in a while, but I I like to take it off, so um, I don't have those thoughts. No, I don't believe that. Okay,
1: but I'm just gonna ask it straight up. Of all the watches you've tried on, oh. what's your favorite?
0: <laughs> I, I I really I really don't have a, a favorite. I mean, it there's so many different types of watches out there that I become so enamored with the story, what they do, and for different reasons. There's some historic watches that I just think are incredible. There's some highly accurate watches that I just think are are, are just so cool, durable watches that I wish I could wear. Um beautiful watches that I wish I could have on me. There's just, I love the variety. I I would never want to put myself in a position where I had to choose one thing or another. You see what I wear. I wear an incredible variety of things. Sometimes I'm just wearing a digital Casio. Sometimes I'm wearing some art watch where you can barely read the time. um, Just because it looks cool. Like it's the variety, which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. I, I like a good watch. I like a good value. I like a lot of personality. Um, but I really can see value in an enormous spectrum of watches.
1: Personally, I think you're living in denial, and we all know it's a Ferdinand Berthoud. But uh, there we go.
0: A Ferdinand Berthoud. Okay, you know what? I would. This, we're, that's like I a three hundred like, thousand dollar yeah, proposition. Most of the how stuff. much money do I need to have? Where I'm like, that sounds like a great idea.
1: <laughs> I don't know three hundred thousand and one dollars. I don't know.
0: Okay, I'll start anyway, saving up.
1: Uh, good stuff. Well, thank you, Ariel, for reversing the tables today. Hopefully, everybody has got a bit of a kick out of hearing a bit of information from yourself for a change, a bit of the story of how you got to where we are in a blog to watch. I've certainly appreciated uh, getting to know you over the last number of years, and I'm very pleased to work alongside you. That's my little crawl so that you buy me a third number to one day. Uh, when you, you know do your IPO or whatever, uh, so other, <laughs> than, other than that, everybody listening, please do. You're obviously tuned into Superlative. Please also tune into a blog to watch weekly. Please keep reading everything that is published at a blog to Ariel, it is after all your show, so you should probably say goodbye to everybody.
0: I appreciate the words. That was very nice to you. everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Superlative Podcast with myself and Richard Atkinson. Uh, we do the Blog to watch weekly podcast together. Listen to it. Thanks for listening to Superlative. We'll see you next time. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablog to watchcom For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablog 2